This podcast contains adult themes and some strong language. I have prepared some performance loops about women in relation to technology. You will be able to click the mouse on picture icons to see movies, read letters, and get information from a robot guide. Please click on my mouth. Hello, I'm Endo O'Dowd and this is Web 1.0, a podcast series from the Irish Times that looks at arguments and innovations of the early internet. Everything we see today is seen through the prism of online networks. But I'm trying to look back at the origins of these networks and the stories of the people who helped create them. You know, it's like when I first heard about the feminization of cyberspace, I thought, well, what do they think we're going to do? It's like, do they think we're going to come in and say, you know, this place needs a few plants? This episode looks at how, for a brief time, it looked like the internet could sustain a real challenge to the patriarchy and how the utopian spirit of third-wave feminism came head-to-head against capitalism. I'm going to tell everyone what you did to me. It was the middle of the night in my house. It was the middle of the night in my house. It was the middle of the night in my house. Usenet started out with two machines in 1979, and it grew exponentially. By 1981, there were about 30, I think, machines connected on. This is trans woman Mary Ann Horton, who found herself managing User Network, or Usenet, in the 1980s. It was the domain of computer scientists and academics, where people could post on forums or news groups. So news groups started to spring up about just about any topic that people were interested in. For example, um, one of the first uh, gay and lesbian groups that came out was alt.motss. They obfuscated the name so that it wouldn't jump out and say alt.gay. So MOTSS stood for members of the same sex. And that was code for gay that gay and lesbian people could talk among themselves in, in those early days. It was around this time that Marianne made a contribution to the internet that would cement her legacy. So I wrote a simple little program that would take a binary file and make it a little bit bigger and turn it into a text file, an encoded text file. So that became a convenient way to email binary files back and forth. So that code had become a de facto standard for email attachments, and that caught on. A binary file could be a sound, picture, or a small program, and Marianne had invented the email attachment. Up to this point, when Marianne had to send files as part of her PhD in Berkeley, she posted floppy disks, which were like portable hard drives, and the process could take days. Email attachments would go on to revolutionise all aspects of the internet. So the, the porn folks very quickly figured out they could take their porn and encode it and post it to an alt.sex group, and they, they love that. And sharing porn online would influence all types of people, including artists. I read that the, the, the art collective started imposing porn. Yeah. How we started was, you know, because we were artists, we didn't have much money. We thought, oh, why don't we make some porn, you know, and... You know, we thought it would be a porn collective. Julian Pierce was studying women's studies, and along with Josephine Stars, Francesco Di Romero, and Virginia Barrett, they formed VNS Matrix. It was an art collective from Adelaide, Australia, that both influenced and was influenced by third wave feminism. We took some saucy photos, but that was about it. But we we weren't really pornographers. 
but then we sort of turn those images into artworks. We've always been interested in how can you create a feminist, I guess, sexualized imagery and being empowered through that. That's where the porn stuff comes in. But it was, it wasn't, it was a bit of a joke, really. The collective are credited with popularizing the term cyberfeminism, which came to describe an international group of feminists, coders, and media artists who began linking up online. It was at the time that the internet was just about to kick off, I guess. You know, so it was all very dial-up modem. We were using things like Muds and Moose, which was a very early sort of text-based online forum. Muds was a text-based role-playing game. It had chat options within the game, but it was somewhat insulated from the real world and people could appear as characters. Venus Matrix, we're really interested in playing with characters on identity and gender. So it really came out of a combined interest from the four of us to really look at what was the relationship between women and technology and feminism and technology. So we really went into this space to be able to explore identity in cyberspace. 56% of respondents to a study at the time on text-based role-playing games said they switched their gender in the game. So it was a largely progressive, inclusive space. I asked Julian what the atmosphere on the wider internet was like at the time. Well, there was toxic elements and, you know, a lot of it was coming out of California, you know, Stanford, and it was sort of dominated by American sensibilities at the time. The American sensibilities, though, also brought a lot of back-end infrastructure, which included domain names. It's difficult to understand now, but at one point, someone had to invent the idea of a website name. When the concept of domains came out, I thought this was a great idea. So I wrote the what the heck is a domain paper, which eventually became the what is a domain paper. Mary registered att.com and stargate.com in April and August 1986, and they were the 15th and 25th domain names ever created. At this time, she was also central to running Usenet. I was part of this, this group they called the Backbone Cabal that was running it. And when I say running it, I mean, it wasn't even an email chain. It was, it was largely happening on one of the news groups. The people who had access to the computers were people who were capable of using a command line Unix system. So most of the people that were on there were technical and most technical people at the time were, were men. I think it's fair to say, yes, it was male dominated space. The closeted nature of this online world would change quite abruptly. In early 1991, Nicola Pello, under the guidance of Tim Berners-Lee, created a simple text-based web browser that could be viewed on any operating system. Nicola would later be central to building Apple's first web browser too. There's almost no information of her online, and there's only one low-res photograph of her in circulation. When I contacted people at CERN and old academic colleagues, none of them knew where she now was. The World Wide Web that was created by her and others at CERN revolutionized the way we now live. A poll in 1983 found that just 1.4% of American adults had been online. By 1994, that was up to 14% and it hit 44% by the turn of the century. This ease in use meant that anyone could set up their own websites. And... 
when a Turkish accordion playing journalist, Mahir Shajir, set up his own website in November 99, his page and images would quickly go viral. And he would help inspire one of the most influential websites of the following decade. One other motivation, actually, probably the true motivation, was actually just that I was obsessed with this person called the Turkish Stud. This is James Hong. And how the internet embraced Mahir Jajir and renamed him the Turkish Stud had a huge influence on James. The Turkish Stud was a Turkish guy who had a bunch of pictures online. And then someone else made a parody website using those pictures. And uh, I think Borat, you know, the character Borat, I think it was based on this Turkish stud character. Sasha Barancon had in fact been developing the Borat character since 1996 on Granada Television. But many things on Mahir's website, such as text saying, this is my homepage, I kiss you, and I like sex, or who is want to come to Turkey, I can invitate, she can stay at my home. All this, along with images of Mihir sunbathing speedos, playing ping pong and practicing the accordion, led many people drawing lines between Mihir and Borat. But in any case, a 98-99 era during the internet boom, companies were paying millions of dollars trying to get, you know, 10 users. And this Turkish stud thing kind of grew virally on its own. And he ended up on Letterman and he was getting a ton of press. And we just found it amazing that like, this kooky idea had all this attention while all these companies wasting a lot of money were, um, were not. Mihir Shajir publicly posting his own images is what we now call user-generated content. And James saw its potential. One of the motivations was also like, can we build something that would require no money to build and no money in marketing that would go viral? You know, we had the idea, built it very quickly, launched it and it just kind of took on a life of its own. James's website was called Hot or Not and it was a very simple idea. When you opened up the website, there was a picture of a person and you were given the option of rating them from one to 10. 10 being hot and one being not. That was it, but it went viral. Similarly, 10 years earlier, Julian Pierce was about to go viral, but with a very different goal. Because there's four of us, we all wrote this big document, the Cyber Feminist Manifesto for the 21st Century, and we all contributed to it. It was a real mashup. So, you know, there's references to French feminist theory and, you know, to William Gibson and obviously Donna Haraway, and we wanted to, it to come across as a powerful statement of female sexuality and poetry, and it's wanting to be part of a technological era, but also being really critical of it. But fun, you know? Manifestos were in the air at the time. Riot Girl, Donna Harway and Gorilla Girls all published manifestos in the preceding years that all used bold, direct language to expose misogyny. An extract of VNS Matrix Manifesto that I'm able to read without being bleeped is, quote, We are the virus of the new world order, disorder, rupturing the symbolic from within, the saboteurs and big daddy mainframe. The clitoris is a direct line to the Matrix, VNS Matrix, terminators of the moral code. 
<laughs> a lot of it comes from, you know, three, we all went to convent school. So, I mean, it's very Irish Catholic, you know, we're all Irish Catholic girls. So there's a naughtiness in there. You know, there's a celebration of being naughty and a bit disruptive and misbehaving. This combative text was published in 18 book billboards and was shared widely across the early internet. It did go viral and, um, you know, and, and I guess we saw it as this frontier, that if the internet was going to be a new frontier, you know, how could, you know, women or female identifying people create that space and take it? You know, and, and I guess we saw it as finding a language. You know, it's like how do you find a language to to talk about something that's new and foreign and, you know, and sexualised? You know, because no one really knew what it was going to be then. We move through this post-real world together at the speed of thought. From 1991 to 1996, VNS Matrix created video games and exhibited across the world online and off. Their work constantly explored the topic of what feminism and identity meant in an online space. It was like, is this a way to bring down the patriarchy? <laughs> I think that was what our that was what our sentiment was. Is this a space where we can smash the patriarchy and create a new sort of culture? And perhaps there could be a more I don't know. It, it was foolish thinking, and it was a bit. It was a bit. a bit socialist, feminist. You know. Yeah. The patriarchy was not smashed, but. It was challenged. At this time, Marianne was working for a telecommunications equipment provider, Lucian Technologies. She hadn't transitioned at this time and was cross-dressing at work. Were you surprised at how accepting people were at that time? Yes, actually I was. I had been told that it couldn't be done, that in order to present as the sex opposite from how you were assigned at birth at work, the only way to be accepted was to be completely immersed in the new role and completely passable. And I was not transitioned. I was part-time in 1997 and I didn't want to transition. And I had made a decision not to pass so that I could educate people just by being and existing in in day-to-day life. So I asked for the right to have a non-discrimination clause at Lucent where they would add to their their policy that they wouldn't discriminate based on gender identity, characteristics, or expression. And they added that. And that was the first uh, Fortune 500 company that had such a non-discrimination policy. Marianne's activism was trailblazing, but there were still challenges for her within work. The Sunday before I went in is Marianne. They actually had a conference call on the weekend. And it was um, attended by my boss, by the local employee resource group, president, by the national ERG president, by uh, corporate security, by HR. Everybody was there except me. And their big frantic question was, what restaurant is she going to use? And they went round and round about it and decided that, well, there are single occupancy men's room and, and women's rooms in the medical department. So my first day at work, I had to walk to the single occupancy restroom and I'm wearing high heels. And that's a quarter mile from my desk. But I was happy to use it because I got to come to work as Marianne. And I put up with that restroom rule for a couple of years until we got a better restroom rule passed 
that um, people would use the restroom matching their current gender presentation. After this success, Marianne focused on other companies and convinced Apple and IBM, among others, to add gender identity and expression language to their HR policy documents. In 2001, she fully transitioned to Marianne after making workspaces across America a lot more welcoming to trans people. At this time, at the turn of the decades, hot or not, James Hong's new website was blowing up on the internet. At the end of the first day, I remember telling my partner, Jim, that it looked like it was costing us about $50,000 a month. And it was like doubling every like eight hours or something like that. I mean, for two guys, you know, I was unemployed at the time and Jim was a grad student and I was in debt. It was not something that we could afford to uh, do. And so we really did. We almost shut it down because of that. This was 2001, a world away from when VNS Matrix launched their cyborg manifesto for the 21st century. It was a 21st century. But 2001 was still a world away from today, and the internet was a very different space. The biggest difference between then and now was kind of like social acceptance of sharing content or sharing our own lives. When if you even had a digital camera, you know, the idea that you would ever post something publicly, a photo in particular, was completely strange. The concept of, you know, judging people online is kind of antiquated now, but at the time it was fairly avant-garde, cutting edge. You know, I think by two months in, we were like the 18th or 19th or 20th largest advertising website domain in the world. Don't forget, this is before Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, MySpace, Snapchat and Bebo. It was before almost all social media sites. And this was a fairly groundbreaking concept of people uploading and sharing their own personal information onto a third-party website. I think this that concept ended up leading to YouTube as well, right? Like YouTube, the founders actually of YouTube are old friends of ours and actually they started off as a hot or not copycat, which we were okay with. YouTube, in fact, originally started out as a dating site. On Valentine's Day in 2005, YouTube.com was born. And the concept then was that users would upload videos of themselves talking about what they were looking for in a partner. The tagline to the site was, tune in and hook up. But they had a very serious problem. No one wanted to participate. And the founders were left to put up ads on Craigslist, offering $20 to women to post videos. And then they said, well, why does it have to just be about dating? Why can't it be about everything, right? But I think the concept of sharing and exposing your own content publicly is probably something that we kind of led on. There was another serious piece of innovation in the Hot or Not website. We, I think, popularized the idea of an interaction with the web, with a website where you don't have to hit a submit button, which sounds trivial. It sounds like it's not even a thing today because there is no submit. Like when was the last time you saw a submit button? You, you, you almost never see a submit button, like for interactions, especially for quick interactions. Like you would click one to 10 and it would just go automatically. And that was kind of like, it made it so fast and it made it kind of like this addictive cycle. This is one aspect of what we would now call the gamification of the internet 
where things instantly update and become an endless scroll, where you're rated and judged by how many likes you get and how you're perceived by your peers and strangers alike. Are you okay? We're ranking girls. You mean other students? Yeah. You think this is such a good idea? There was, of course, another famous company that was launched just two years later where users would, again, be asked to judge how hot people were. It was called The Face Mash and would evolve in time into The Facebook. Like, do you feel angry or bitter about like companies you know, running with, with, with what was your idea? No, not really. I mean, you know, and even before Face Mash, you had MySpace and you had Friendster. And, you know, I'm friends with all of these guys. You know, there's no bitterness at all because, you know, like they did it and I didn't do it, right? I didn't, we chose not to go in certain directions and they chose to go in those directions. You know, like we all build on each other's ideas, right? Like should the person who made Linux, should Linus Torvalds be mad that, you know, Larry Page ran with his system and built Google? I don't know. You know, like, no, like, you know, it's like, I don't really see it as ownership like oh it's my idea and they took it or something like that you know like was there a, a sense of like you know altruism in silicon valley at the time or yeah i mean there, there 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 always has been it's not exactly the same ethos that it was back then but then we were happy to you know let our friends have free bandwidth and free rack space you know like twitter ran in our cage for its first two years what became google mobile maps ran in our cage for a while there are some other examples you know it's kind of like if you have a lot of beers you're gonna let your friends have some beer right like you're not gonna be like you're not gonna be like well you have to pay me for that beer you know they're building stuff that i like why not as web 2.0 was starting to take off the term cyber feminism was falling out of popular use vns matrix had already disbanded i asked julian why oh look i think it was i think we had our time and you know, we went in separate, we went in other directions and we just ran out of steam in terms of, you know, the work we were making. And, you know, we wanted to make a game. You know, we really wanted to make a feminist computer game, Bad Code, but it didn't really work out. And, you know, we took it to LA and we had meetings. And I think maybe that just, it fractured the group a little bit probably. As VNS Matrix hopes for building a feminist computer game floundered, a team of six men in the UK were putting the finishing touches on Tomb Raider, a new computer game that featured a female lead in a tight-fitting shorts and a ludicrous chest size. But what was the long tail of cyberfeminism? I asked James how he reflected on creating a website that judged women on how hot they were, from one to ten. Like, we were definitely superficial. I mean, that, that's a whole concept. But in terms of misogyny, you know, we actually had more men being rated than women by two to one. When I would tell people that we were rating men and that men were basically getting a taste of their own medicine, uh, a lot of people were more okay with it at that point in time. You know, it's kind of like, in this case, we were actually being more misogynistic towards men, if that's possible, for better or for worse. I'm not, I'm not defending it. It just, it is what it is. It was what it was. In many ways, James' website was forward-thinking. They had a visible moderator button and took down photos that were flagged as being uploaded without the person's consent. 20 years later, many social media companies have far more bureaucratic and frustrating systems for reporting complaints. I mean, I can defend it to some degree by saying, look, we didn't create this kind of like judgment based on superficial looks type of thing. Like this has been going on 
in the heads of every man and woman on earth since the age of the caveman, right? Like if a, like a strikingly attractive person walks in the door of the cafe you're sitting in, everyone, I guarantee you, notices before they even think about it. We didn't invent that is my point. However, if I could go back in time, would I change it? You know, uh, that's come come up before. And, you know, I don't know. It's hard to speculate what I would do. Would you let your children go on a Hasanas equivalent or are they on social media? Or like- I don't know. You know, um, I mean, the concept of it is basically Instagram, Snapchat and so on. Right. I don't know. To be honest with you, like it, it's hard to say because and in, in today's society, you almost can't avoid it. Right. I do tell my daughters, for instance, that or my children in general, that, you know, external validation is not something that you should seek, right? Because it is generally unhealthy. And, you know, actually, it's funny, because like, again, with hot or not, this is going to sound strange, but we gave people the distribution of votes, not just the score, the final score. Because we wanted people to actually realize that even if they got a low score, which we did ourselves, right? we didn't get the highest scores, there were some people who were on the higher end of that vote distribution who gave them a higher score. And in, in, in some ways, we kind of saw it as a means of communicating to people that beauty really was in the eye of the beholder, that it's subjective. And that like, you know, even if I'm a 4.5, someone out there thinks I'm an eight or nine. And that's actually how most people that we talked to that were users of our site seemed to take it, actually. And so we were kind of fixated on that. And... Um, you know, you could argue that we were blind and it led to a lot of things that are also negative, And that's probably true. It's very easy to look in retrospect and say, oh, you know, this original thing that led to how things are now was kind of like conceived to do this. You know, it's, it's more unintended consequences and the creativity of users out there and how they use the technology that lead to those things that the originators didn't know. By 2001, of the 96 million people online, 45% were women. Yet, as Web 2.0 developed, the algorithms reflected a male perspective and the hopes of a cyber-feminism utopia fell short. For me, personally, the internet all, you know, has replicated you know, the industrial complex and made it stronger. So the internet just played out as a sort of another, you know, corporation. It's it's just become a big corporation. <laughs> it's controlled by a group of men, you know, white men. You know, Zuckerberg and, you know, those few people that came out of it to own the internet and determine its future. I don't know, I just feel that we've gone backwards. At the turn of the century, feminists weren't the only ones who suffered from the reverberations of the internet. A 2020 study found that 1 in 12 Americans were victims of a revenge porn. Another study in 2020 found that 1 in 2 women had experienced reduced self-esteem or loss of self-confidence, stress, anxiety or panic attacks because of cyber harassment. And in the first quarter of 2022, 9.5 million pieces of policy-violating content were removed from Facebook, the highest ever number removed by the platform. People are just not used to having the power of scale. 
for instance. I remember when we first got subpoena around a murder, right? Because if you connect millions of people together, there will be crimes of passion. Because just in scale, it statistically is going to happen. Like in a city of a million people, will there be any murders? Yes. And so you kind of have to grapple with that as an individual because, you know, I never thought that I would ever be involved in any way in something that would ever touch a murder, for instance, right? But at scale, you do. And, uh, you know, because some people are shitty. <laughs> I've had this conversation with many other people who've built large systems where everyone kind of it's like, yeah, it's a fact of life. Like if you run something that touches, you know, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people, then everything happens within that subset of people. You know, it, it's a difficult thing. It's a strange thing as an individual to think that you're related to things that are happening at a macro level. I have been silenced for 20 years. I have been slut shamed. I've been harassed, I've been maligned, and you know what, I'm just like you. Because what happened to me behind the scenes happens to all of us in this society, and that cannot stand, and it will not stand. And this scale that can elevate the suffering of strangers can also inspire the masses to create movements. You know, the internet has enabled Me Too and Black Lives Matter and, you know, there is a strong female voice on the internet. What we're seeing now with, you know, with, with the trans movement and the sort of non-binary movement is a rethinking of, you know, what the body is and I, and I think that is very disruptive to patriarchy. You know, so I think there is a sort of feminist disruption that is still bubbling underneath. And people of the LGBTQ community were able to find allies and safe spaces where they could be themselves and not have to communicate in online groups that have to obfuscate the name. In the 80s, in the 90s, the trans groups were all very, very secretive. We were all very closeted. And we would have meetings in secret locations, which tended to be somebody's house. And I'm in touch with the groups, and they've largely disbanded because nobody needs that kind of secrecy anymore. From the trans point of view, it's, it's much improved now, and the Internet has contributed to that by having websites and groups and easy, easily found people that can provide support for each other. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please consider subscribing to the Irish Times. It's just one euro for the first month. If subscribing isn't for you, there's still loads of great writing on philosophy, media and culture on the irishtimes.com that you might be interested in that isn't behind a paywall. This podcast was made by me, Enzo Dowd, along with John Casey and head of audio in the Irish Times, Declan Conlon. Artwork is by Paul Scott and the music is by Kirk Ozamo and Sergei Tremisov.